So we're actually standing up and, and they came over the top of the hill and we just froze. And I was standing there with my gun, you know, ready. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to shoot. And he was like, just wait, just wait one more minute. And I think he was waiting for the second bird to, to come so that we could get a double. And what ended up happening is I dropped that first bird and a couple minutes later, Patrick was able to take another one and we both walked out successful that day, which is really awesome. And, you know, for, for me, it's not so much about the size of the bird or you know, getting the picture for Instagram or anything like that. It's, it's more or less the experience. And that was one of the more fun turkey hunting I've ever had. So I'm really glad that we did that. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Christy, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Christy Holmes. I'm a registered Maine guide in hunting and fishing. I live in Southern Maine. I um, founded the group called Maine Women Hunters and just an avid outdoorsman, I guess. Jill? I'm Jill LaPlante. I am an avid outdoorsman, woman, (laughs) I guess. And I have not really been a hunter for a very long time, but I really love it. And I also founded a group called New England Sportswomen, which the intent there is to promote and empower women to become more involved in the outdoors. Why do women need a group like that? How how does that benefit you? So I believe that for me, based on my personal experience, um, I didn't have any sort of a mentor in the outdoor hunting, fishing world. So I was fortunate enough to meet someone named Hillary in college who was able to introduce me to turkey hunting and just got me hooked on it and was able to get me outside. And she's the one who really guided me and that inspired me to then want to teach other people, um, particularly females in the sense that um, it's it's a bit of uh, an intimidating sport to get into, whether it's hunting or archery or fishing, because, you know, it's not easy to just go to a range and pick up a gun or buy a bow without having some sort of a, some sort of a mentor to to show you the way. Gotcha. 
Um, how about you, Christy? Yeah. Um, there's something to be said about um, women teaching other women. And like Jill said, it's more empowering, I think. Our group is over 3,000 women now. And it's something about learning with other like-minded people. And the dynamic does change when you have um, men in the group. And I think it's just, you can ask questions like, do you ladies, um, do you use a shiwi? Do you hunt while you're on your periods? Uh, what's the best thing to put my baby in on the boat so I can go fishing? Questions that women would feel too shy or embarrassed to ask um, men in a, in a male group. And I've noticed ladies will also share a little more personal experiences like, oh, I missed a deer tonight and I feel really disappointed and everyone is so supportive. And I think in a co-ed group, you, you wouldn't get that. But I mean, I've learned from men, men are great. I mean, most women learn from men. And I think I speak on behalf of most women that we are very grateful for men um, teaching us fathers, partners, but there's just something about a girls club, I guess, and sharing it, sharing these typical male things, but with, with fellow female. I agree fully with you, Christine. I think part of it too is uh, it's non-traditional, you know, it's not necessarily something that people are used to seeing. So if you go to a range or if you go to a bow shop and I'm, I'm the only one in there that's a female. So everyone's kind of looking at you, expecting either you'd either not know what you're doing or they have a very high expectation of, hey, you must know what you're doing because you're here. And if you're not comfortable with that, it can be really intimidating. And it kind of, um, especially if you don't have someone or, um, the, the history of growing up like that, it's, it's really hard to kind of overcome that fear of being looked at when you walk into a store to get in the initial introduction. What are some mistakes that guys make when they are teaching a woman something about hunting or fishing or trapping something outdoors? What are we doing wrong? Hmm. I think uh, at least with, when my boyfriend tries to teach me things, he can be a little more critical and I'm like can you just like give me some positives you know the sandwich method you do like a positive and then some criticizing and then a positive what do you think Joe I'm thinking about this question because it's um it's a it's a good question so I for me it's not so much um about being overly critical or anything like that but it's more uh I'd, I'd like to just do it myself, you know, and a lot of the time I get the whole, oh, well, let me just, let me just help you or I'll go with you. I'll just do that. And it's like, Hey, don't baby me. I just, let me try it first. And if I really can't do it, I'll ask because I'm very stubborn and I want to figure it out myself. So often, whether it's male or female, honestly, um, that's just something that's just how I am. But um, I think across the board, it just, men do have a tendency to be chivalrous and if I'm crossing a stream or something like that, it's like, Hey, take, let me take that. Let me grab your bag. Let me help you. It's like, Hey, I got it. Yeah. I think part of that stream crossing stuff is definitely a double-edged sword because as a guy, if I see somebody crossing a log over a stream, I want them to fall in. I'm going to think that's hilarious, 
But I also know that if it's a woman and she falls in and I laugh, that I'm going to be in trouble for that. So it's in my, you know, best interest in self-preservation <laughs> to like make sure that I don't put myself in a situation <laughs> where I'm laughing at somebody that just fell in. Valid. <laughs> um, what's it take to become a guide in Maine, Christy? Well, to become a guide in Maine, you have to sit and take a test. It consists of, you can choose whether you want to do hunting, fishing, or recreation, or all three. Um, but each test has a written portion, and that's usually um, like the easiest. It's laws, identification. Um, and then there's the map and compass portion. And if you study, you should do, you should do okay on that. That's probably what most people fail though, because you're nervous and it's, you know, it's, it's a little tricky. And then there's the verbal section. So you have two either master main guides or game wardens sitting with you in a room for an hour, just grilling you. And they will hand you a firearm and ask you to tell them about it. They will point to photos of ducks on the wall and ask you to ID the ducks. They'll show you plants. Um, even in, um, like when I took the fishing one, they asked about plants. They ask about types of trees. And then they do a lot of situational questions. So they'll say, hey, you're taking me grouse hunting and um, I shoot a spruce grouse and uh, what are you, or, or they'll say, I shoot number eight on the wall. What are you going to say to me? And that's, and then you say, well, that's spruce grouse. You're not allowed to shoot those. So, uh, and then they want to see if you're going to stick by your guns and they're, oh no, don't tell the warden. I shot a spruce grouse. I won't, I'll leave you a bad review. You won't get a good tip. So they, they really test you. They ask you about knots, tying knots. They ask you about fishing line. They, handed me a box of flies and said name all the flies you can in here they really expect you to have a breadth of knowledge and a depth of knowledge and they want to know that you're going to keep your clients safe so they don't have to the game wardens don't have to come rescue you and your client that's impressive um i can tell you what it takes in oregon is a cpr first aid card you pay for a guide license and you pay for insurance and ominous, ominous, you are a guide. Congratulations. So there's no mandate or expectation of skill. And it's a real shame. It's a real shame. And a lot of States have a similar issue with whitewater. Um, there's at least a skill requirement. You have to have, you know, so many trips and so many days with, you know, class four, class five whitewater before you can get a guide license in, in Idaho, for example. But I think that we need to seriously look at the main model and implement that in, in a lot of other states because the quality of the guides is, is significantly higher in Maine than it is in other places because the standards are higher. Yeah, I've heard of some people come to Maine and study the Maine laws and to get the Maine licensure just so they can go out west and it it proves that they're you know it sets them apart when they guide out west what made you want to become a guide um i think it part of it was seeing if i was like good enough to become a guide 
um, if I could pass the test and then just knowing that I would have that certifications for the, the rest of my life and, you know, help other women and, you know, kids and stuff. Now, both of you two are engineers and you're both avid outdoorsmen and also started, uh, started women's hunting groups. Is that a coincidence? That's why yes. we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> what, when I stumbled across Christie's profile, actually the funny thing, my aunt was listening to, I think the morning buzz or something, Christy, that you did. And yeah. she was like, you have to, you have to get in touch with, with this woman, Christy. She was just on the bus. She sounds like you. This is weird. So I actually, when I found your profile and messaged you, I, I was like, can we have a phone call? Because this is, this is interesting. And I just ran by, um, ran by Christy, what I was planning to do with New England sportswomen. And um, we kind of came across the fact that we were similar in that way. It's kind of interesting that, that fishing and hunting often end up being group together and they're, they're wildly different. Um, I mean, they both occur outside, but beyond that, there's more differences than there are similarities between fishing and hunting within these groups that, that both of you, both of you have started. Um, how have you tried to, to attack that? Do you, do you try to do more hunting based things, more fishing based things? Like what's easier is one a gateway for the other? I have, found um for our group trips that fishing you can just bring more people on it and pretty much everyone can be successful so uh those are really popular our our group hunts are like smaller like four people or else you're you can't hide um but yeah and in Maine you know it's it's like the four seasons are you know fall hunting everything and then there's ice fishing and then there's turkey hunting and then open water fishing. So they kind of don't overlap a ton. So it, it's nice that in the summer when there's nothing to hunt, everyone wants to go fishing. Fishing has a much um, easier barrier to entry. You know, you don't necessarily need to have a hunting license. You, you just have to, you can buy a fishing license online. You don't really need to, to know what you're doing to, to go on a fishing trip someone can just hand you a rod and say, Hey, this is how this works. Um, let's figure this out today. And it's a good time. Christy, what are some of the differences for you between actually participating in hunting versus guiding? Um, well, when I go hunting, I usually go by myself and it's, it's kind of my own time to kind of unplug, unwind. Um, sometimes I bring my dog, and then guiding is just all about like the shared joy of seeing, um, you know, women shoot their first duck or it's just like so much more exciting. It's like a team effort. And I just, I, you know, it's just so nice to like live vicariously through other people, like experiencing their first. Yeah. That, that is a really great moment. And I, I think I've talked about this before on the show, but I think all of us sort of wish that we could have that first experience again for what ended up being something that, you know, changed who we are as people, you know, it's, it's a lot more than a hobby. It's a lot more than just something you do on a weekend. Like it becomes part of your identity. And if you knew when you first did it, that that was going to happen, like 
how much different would that have changed that first experience? And you can never have that back again, but guiding, you can sort of have it back again and you can have it and share that with a lot of people. And that is something that I definitely appreciate and enjoy about guiding as well. What are, uh, what are the species that you guide for? Um, I do a lot, um, a few groups of ice fishing, because you can bring lots of people on that one. And then upland hunting with my dog, mostly. And what's the deal with not being able to hunt on Sundays? <laughs> it's like an old law um, that is still around, but... Maine is about 90% privately owned and um, a lot of our land is like privately owned by timber companies and they allow the public to hunt and recreate on their land, which is great. It feels so that makes it feel like public land, but it's, it is private land. So we have a law in Maine where if it's not posted, you can hunt and, and recreate on it. And every year they, the legislature try, thinks about allowing Sunday hunting and the private landowners are like, no way. So until, until the private landowners support it, I don't think it will, it will go away. Massachusetts is also a anti-Sunday hunting state. And, and why is that in Massachusetts? Same reason. It's just an old law and I think there's been a, a few different attempts to try and, you know, push for Sunday hunting. And um, it, it got some pushback from guides in the sense that like having a day of, to take a break, I guess, and maybe Christy can speak to that more, but. Those guides needs um, to toughen up. Guides don't get breaks. <laughs> this, is, this is Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, they need to, you know, harden it up a little bit. That's, that's, that's bogus. That's why my my favorite state to hunt is New Hampshire. To be honest, it's you don't need to have access. You you can just go anywhere. You don't need permission to to hunt there, which is really interesting. Similar to Maine. Well, what you'll notice if you if you come out and hunt in the West is that the public land, and this is an unpopular opinion, but the the, the public land that's managed by the government is in pretty rough shape. It's in pretty rough shape. But if you can get access to private land whether that's access that everybody gets or just permission that you've gotten for yourself, you're going to have a lot better experience and then significantly better habitat. Even if the terrain and vegetation has the same potential, you know, private landowners are able to go in there and actually work on improving the habitat. And they're working on agriculture and they're working on timber and working on thinning and things like that, that make it so that wildlife can utilize this stuff. In Oregon, for example, I think we're 60% public um, but you know, 90% of our wildlife spends all of their time on private land and it's because it's better habitat for them. So you've got a good thing going on there and you have to be careful with it because those timber companies can get tired of you and they can say no, and they'll walk around and post their borders and, and that's the end of it. And we've seen some of that occur in Western Oregon and Western Washington, for example, the timber companies just had enough because people were abusing their property. And I don't blame them for it. So I would recommend trying to figure out who's who with those timber companies and, and become buddies with them and then see what you can be doing to help them out so that you can keep using that ground. And then if, if other people are abusive and it turns, 
you know, you might be the one that gets to keep hunting it. Yeah. I think part of it is just, you know, we're like old curmudgy Mainers and we're like, oh, we can't change anything. We can't allow Sunday hump day. That's, that's changed. <laughs> we're stuck yeah. in our ways. That's, a, I mean, both aspects of, of that are, are really bizarre. One, that you can hunt on private land without permission. And two, that you can't hunt on Sundays. And it, that would just, it would never fly out West because I, I don't know. We've never had that tradition, but people work all week long and then they want to hunt on the weekends. They want to hunt both days of the weekend. It seems crazy that they wouldn't be able to. I, I have heard in some of the Southern states that don't allow Sunday hunting, that they did it to keep men at home at least one day a week. And uh, I, I think that that's funny that they had to legislate that. I just fish on Sundays, so I'm not that upset about that. <laughs> I think part of it too um, is the nature lover, like people who want to go out and hike, they want to have the opportunity to have a day where they're not going to be in the woods with hunters. Hmm. And another interesting thing, about New Hampshire. So there's actually a, a tax credit if you do not post your property. So it's an incentive for people to actually open up their land and allow people, or I guess not post their land so that people can continue to hunt, hike, fish, or whatever on that property. And then the landowner is incentivized to do so. There are some programs for that out West, like Montana has block management and a landowner can allow public access. And they can even mandate how that access occurs. So they can say non-motorized just for these species, just these days of the week, um, written permission only. You know, there's all kinds of controls that they can put over it, or they can just completely open it up. But there's a tax incentive for them to do that in the state of Montana. And they have huge patches of block management land that are really wonderful areas to hunt. Um, Oregon has access and habitat, which, you know, is a is, is a mimic of block management that doesn't work as well, but it, it does work in some places. And I'm sure other Western states have similar programs. And I think that that's terrific, right? That's private landowners and, and, uh, and the public and the government all working together so that everybody can meet their own resource objectives. I'd like to see a lot more of that. So Christy, what's your hunting season going to look like this year? Well, I filled one of my turkey tags last week. I'm going to go out with my bow tomorrow, try to get one with my bow. Um, and then, and then it will, the striped, striped bass are almost here in Maine. Um, so then I'll do some saltwater fishing and then fall, um, I'll go rough grouse hunting, woodcock hunting with my dog. I have a Brittany and whitetail hunting. You know, maybe some bear hunting. We'll see. I put in for my moose tag, so they they'll draw those in a couple weeks. Maine got my money for moose too, so we'll see. We'll see. Well, uh, non-residents, you can buy as many chances as you want. So if if non-resident listening has a you know a budget, you can might be able to kind of buy your way into a moose tag. It'd probably be cheaper than Alaska. Yep. It, uh, it might be, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not historically lucky on those things. So I think I only put in once, but I didn't realize that maybe I'll have to start buying, buying some entries. Yeah. yeah. Residents can't buy entries. Um, I think I have like 12 bonus points. So okay. maybe in the next few years, I'm thinking I'll be drawn. 
make it happen. Yeah. Well, tell me, uh, tell me a turkey hunting story. Oh, well, last year was probably my most exciting year for turkeys. Um, my, my boyfriend, he's less of a turkey hunter than me. He started turkey hunting when we met. So last year I was like, okay, you can shoot first. So I, we went to this place where I had gotten permission and the sun's coming up and we hear this hen just like yakking. And I'm like, I don't know, it kind of sounds like another hunter. And sure enough, the sun comes up and we see decoys a hundred yards away, like pretty close. And I'm like, oh man, like great. And so we hear a Tom gobbling and he's kind of down the field from both of us. And he starts making his way over. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to call because this guy is calling his brains out. Um, and so finally the Tom crested the hill and I'm like, okay, well now I have to call to try and get him to come to us. And we had a Tom decoy out with a real, um, fan. And I think that's, that's what brought him. That's why he chose us, I think. So he came in and my boyfriend shot him. And then I was like, oh man, this guy's going to be so pissed that like he did almost all the calling. And then the Tom chose us, but he was the nicest guy. He was so nice. So. And then a couple of days later at the same place, um, I hunted all day because some people will call it patience. I call it stubbornness. So I was like, I know the turkeys, this is their spot where they like to hang out. Cause I didn't have permission to hunt where they roost. Uh, even though it wasn't posted, I just didn't want to hunt over there. Cause I didn't, hadn't asked permission. So and I was sitting there all day and it, it was like 5 30 PM and they started kind of working their way back to the other property where they were going to roost. And I was like, Ugh. I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put a stock on them. And they were, uh, the flock was in a, it was a Christmas tree farm. So the trees were about three to four feet tall, which is actually perfect for stalking a turkey because uh, like I was pretty well hidden crawling, but I could see his fan and he was like doing a dance with the hen trying to like mate her. So at one point, all the other hens spotted me and took off running, but him and the hen just kept doing circling each other doing this trance. So he was clearly distracted. Um, so I range finded him and um, took him at about 50 yards when he, fi he finally separated enough from the hen. And that turkey I had scored, he was, uh, had inch and a half spurs, which is pretty big for here in Maine. Um, so he scored 70.4 for a typical turkey, which is pretty big. Wow, nice job. Um, what's your go-to turkey recipe? Um, I make a mean pot pie and then I'll do turkey nuggets with the legs I like to crock pot them and I'll make a barbecue pulled pork sandwich with those or I do a buffalo chicken dip and just put the turkey leg in it because it just tastes like buffalo anyway so Christy, right. you're gonna have to give me some some pointers on cooking wild turkey <laughs> oh, it's good you gotta uh like soak it in water for for a day or two yeah I haven't figured it out yet <laughs> Well, Jill, I want to hear about your and uh, Patrick's hunt this year. Oh boy. So, um, 
for the past couple of years now, we've been going out as a tradition in New Hampshire opening weekend. We'll go and turkey hunt. Um, so this year, him and I went. There were supposed to be four of us actually, and two of the guys bailed last minute. It ended up just being Patrick and myself, which is fine. We totally have fun. So we went out, and I was a little late, and probably like by five minutes when I say late, that's, that's really late to me. Um, so we ended up going to the spot where I'd never been before. And it was fenced. It was a fenced in farm field area. So right away we heard turkeys making all kinds of noise in the trees. They were still roosted and we were walking and it was still somewhat dark. I mean, it was legal shoot, but it was, it was just barely. So we're walking and all of a sudden these three t- young toms just flew out of a tree and probably 50 yards in front of us. So Patrick was like, don't move. And all, both of us just hit the deck and I was like all contorted in this weird angle laying on the ground with my shotgun. And my elbow must have fallen asleep for, I had to have been 30 minutes. And, you know, Patrick's just sitting there calling. I don't know how he managed to call without being detected. But finally, these these birds moved over. A hen came walking through and the birds moved over. And we were able to just kind of army crawl away and into the the tree line. Uh, And at that point, he was like, Hey, those are young birds. You know, what do we, what do you think we should do here? And I was like, I don't, I don't care. I'm, I just, I think we should go shoot them. So he's like, okay. So we ended up. That's the spirit. (laughs) I I was like, I'm, I'm hungry, man. (laughs) So we ended up walking along the tree line, just really slow calling. And at that point, the hen must have decided that they were, you know, they weren't her man. She wanted to find a, a big old Tom. So she left them and went across the field and they didn't follow her. So they then became interested in the noises that we were making with the slate call. So we're actually standing up and, and they came over the top of the hill and we just froze. And I was standing there with my gun, you know, ready. And I was like, hey, I'm going to shoot. And he was like, just wait, just wait one more minute. And I think he was waiting for the second bird to, to come so that we could get a double. And what ended up happening is I dropped that first bird. And a couple minutes later, Patrick was able to take another one. And we both walked out successful that day, which is really awesome. And, you know, for, for me, it's not so much about the size of the bird or getting the picture for Instagram or anything like that. It's, it's more or less the experience. And that was one of the more fun turkey hunting I've ever had. So I'm really glad that we did that. Nice. Was that in New Hampshire? Yep. And can you get two birds there, two bearded? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously we each have our own tags. So per person you're allowed to just get, um, either two bearded birds in either season or one per season. So like hunt fall or, or, or spring. And you can only hunt until noon in the spring in New Hampshire, which is wild. I didn't realize that Maine, you can hunt all day until I was on my, um, you know, the New England Sportswoman page. And I saw that someone was out all day and I was like, oh, that's good to know. Maybe I'll start hunting Maine for turkeys. 
we it used to be just until noon in Maine and then they opened it up all day and and we're allowed two bearded in the spring and then most of Maine they opened up to five in the fall any sex because our population is doing so well yeah the populations have been crazy in all of New England and I think it's contributed a, a lot to the fact that they're just in people's yards, literally. <laughs> like you can't get to them. We could drive around all afternoon and see a hundred turkeys and you just can't get them because they're eating at people's bird feeders. I think you can get 12 turkey tags in Montana. Um, you can get two or three in Oregon, a couple in Idaho. I've never hunted turkeys in Oregon for longer than an hour. And it may be less than that. It is so easy. Um, and I, I hear people struggle on the East coast and in the South and, um, and I, I should just do it. I should go back there and Turkey hunt with you guys sometime just to see what the problem is because it is not <laughs> a problem out here. The biggest issue is just finding a place where they are. That's not so close to someone's house that you're going to, you know, get arrested, <laughs> especially with a shotgun. It's, you know, it's even if it is legal range, it's still a little bit sketchy if you can see someone's house. They make silencers for shotguns too. We don't have a lot of agriculture here. It's just heavily wooded, so they're hard to see. That makes deer hunting like mm-hmm. really hard. Mm-hmm. But yes, you're welcome to come. I hunted deer in Maine last year, and uh, it was definitely an interesting experience. I, I think the deer have the advantage there for sure. James, you should tell Christy a little bit about how that experience went for you. <laughs> well, we, we went up there to, to hunt deer in the snow with, with how blood and, and track and do all that, all that stuff. And, uh, and there wasn't any snow. Um, so that made everything uh, a little bit more challenging than, than it already was. And it's, it's not a terrain that I'm used to, you know, it feels like the entire place is a beaver swamp. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We saw, um, we saw one deer. It was running at the time and, uh, had some good food, had some good fun. And, uh, it was, it was cool to see that country. It was cool to, to go into town there and see the, the scale. And, and I, it blows my mind that people pack deer out whole. I think that that's absolutely bonkers, but you know, if you, uh, I don't know, don't have television yeah. or something like that. I, like, I don't know. I don't know why, why you do that to yourselves for entertainment, but drag them, I guess, if you're into it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's part of the challenge that we enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Deer hunting in Maine is definitely humbling. Well, Jill, if you I watch uh, the YouTube videos of people out West and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, look at all the deer they have. Yeah. Yeah especially yeah. archery it's very very difficult yeah jill if you uh if you kill an elk in idaho this year i fully expect you to drag it out whole to the trailhead i'll start working out now uh-huh yeah <laughs> i think if you gain about 250 pounds of muscle and get lucky you might have a chance <laughs> i dragged shoot, shoot I, a small one <laughs> yeah i dragged a uh, big bodied buck probably two and a half miles by myself. I think it was 162 pounds dressed if I remember correctly. And that was, that was mentally challenging as much as it was physically. I wanted to give up every, every four feet. I was taking my shotgun and moving it 
four feet in front of me and then I would back drag by the antlers, grab my gun, move it forward, back drag. So really however mileage I did or whatever mileage I did, I basically doubled it because I was going forward and back, forward and back the whole time. And what state was that in? That was New Hampshire. And are you required to bring deer out whole there or can you quarter them? Um, I don't know. I, <laughs> I've, honestly, I've never looked into I've never looked into not dragging a deer. I've never even heard of someone quartering a deer. Okay. Me neither. Well. A moose. Yes. Maybe we should do some Googling because we could save ourselves some, some struggles if we're way up in yeah. the mountains somewhere. Might, might, be worth, uh, might be worth a Google. It's a good problem to have, dragging out a big deer. Honestly, even if I had to quarter it, that was my first deer that I'd ever shot and I wouldn't have known how anyway. I would have been trying to trying to Google our YouTube things. <laughs> well, there's more than one way to do it. Christy, where can people find out more about you and your group? On fa- we're on Facebook called Maine Women Hunters. And we're also on Instagram, the same name. And then I'm on Instagram, uh, Christy Holmes. What about you, Jill? Uh, I'm on Instagram, um, New England Sportswoman. And we also have a Facebook page. And then Jill LaPlante is my personal Instagram account. Cool. Well, I thank both of you very much for your time. And I also want to thank you for, for what you're doing. You're getting people into the game that otherwise might not be able to. And I think that's awesome. We, we should all be trying to do that because there's, there's a lot to be gained from hunting and fishing and trapping and just doing all this stuff outside that makes you a better person and the world can definitely use more better people right now. And I think that, that the two of you are making it happen. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, good luck this season and uh, keep killing it. Thank you. You too. Will do. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to... Memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. 
tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.